It's funny as many times I'll, I'll begin to study my Bible uh, in, in regards to trying to uh, craft a sermon. I'll, I'll look at it and I'll be studying and, and maybe the original thought or idea that was behind the message uh, somehow is changed according to actually what Scripture says. And for instance, in this passage particular, what we're going to be speaking on today, the thought that originated really was just conjecture. It's what I've heard from preachers over and over and over again over the years, and the Bible never says that. And so as I studied the passage, it intrigued me, um, and I'll, I'll tell you, give you more clarity on this as we proceed through the sermon, but it intrigued me as I began to study the power of the Word of God and how it's so much better than what men could devise or, or craft or make up. It's just so powerful. And, and I never want my sermons to be uh, to take the Word of God and mold them to what I need it to say. I always want my sermons to be molded by the Word of God. And I think that that's the best way to approach it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm very excited about preaching. I see many new faces. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I, I see a bunch in the youth department. Thankful that they're here. Uh, they're probably thinking in the back of their mind, we've got to listen to this guy again. But I'm glad that they're here nonetheless, and uh, I hope that you enjoy the day uh, and your time of worship with us. Uh, Genesis chapter number 6, verse number 5. Uh, once we begin reading it, there will be no doubt in your mind what's going on in the passage. Uh, verse number 5, chapter number 6 of the book of Genesis. The Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Now let me ask you a question this morning. We're all pretty familiar with what's going on in the, the story. Uh, I don't have to read all of the dimensions of the ark for us to realize what's going on. I, I don't necessarily have to tell us exactly how many animals are getting on the boat, because uh, frankly it's quite irrelevant to what we're going to be studying this morning. But uh, I am so intrigued as to this amazing story, how God asked this man to do something that had never before been done, uh, the flood itself had never before been seen. Rain itself had never been seen. And I'm just enamored at this amazing faith that this man displayed. Here's the question, though. 
what drove him? I mean, what was his motivation? Well, sure, the threat of imminent destruction and doom is a pretty good motivation, I would say. But beyond that, what kept Noah going? Let's have a word of prayer. We'll get right into the a sermon this morning. Father, we ask that you'd help us. We ask that every person here would take this time away from the world just to learn from your word and to learn about you. Father, I pray in heaven that you would help us today. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Now, it was many years ago, me and my father went out to the ranch only to discover that one of our bulls had gotten out of the, the fence there at the ranch. And, you know, if it's a calf, it's not such a big deal. Uh, calves generally maybe four, five, six, seven hundred pounds. And, and when you get up to about a 700 pound calf, that starts to get a little worrisome. And, and uh, uh, in fact, this last time we took some calves to the meat locker, I, I, I remember uh, a couple 700 pound calves giving dad a real, <laughs> me and dad a real run for our money. Did you know that rubber boots with their big toes don't really fit into small holes in the fence when you go to jump and get on the fence from the bulls? Did you know that you may just be dangling there and this bull hitting you in the backside as you try to climb this fence? Yeah, that happened recently. But uh, that 700-pound calf, you start to worry. Well, when a bull gets out, it's a whole other story. Uh, this bull in particular, big black Angus bull. In other words, it's actually a Brangus, to be honest with you. It's the ones that look the meanest. They've got this hump on their back, okay? Now, it's not a Brahma, which they have the huge humps. This is just a hump on his back that looks like it's straight muscle. I don't know if it is or not, but it looks like he's packing some real heat in that muscle there. And, and they're built, and they're cut, and this, this bull weighed... If a 700-pound calf would give you some worries, this particular bull weighed about 2,000 pounds. And that is no joke. And this bull honestly probably wasn't trying to break the fence, but he's so big and so strong, that fence never stood a chance. I remember me and Dad kind of going on the exploration adventure trying to find this bull, and uh, we were just kind of following his path there. And we found him on a neighbor's property in the middle of a pond with only his head above water. It was 110 degrees in Texas at that time, and he thought that he would take himself a little mud bath right there in the middle of that pond. Me and Dad are riding our horses, because we're real cowboys, you know. This is, we're, we got a belt buckle and a cowboy hat. That is what certifies you as a real cowboy. You don't need any experience, you don't need anything else, a belt buckle and a cowboy hat. So there we are, seeing this bull out in the middle of this pond, and we began to drive it, okay? And we are moving it along, and, and for the most part, the bull was actually quite cooperative, and it was, it was, it was good, and, and we were kind of going along there. But about 200 yards from the pond, it was like a light switched in that bull's mind, and this is what he thought. You know, I was much cooler in that pond. I'm getting quite warm right now. And there dad is behind the bull. Hey now, bull. Hey now, bull. And uh, I'm right behind dad on my horse. And uh, uh, that bull just does a 180 and looks dad and dad's ride cowboy right in the eye. And dad's, I was so impressed with the courage of my father. He just looks straight down that bull's eyes, 2,000 pounds of nothing but pure muscle, almost as if to say, you ain't turning back, bull. 
And that bull said, watch me. <laughs> that bull began to just, just kind of get into a little bit of a trot. And dad stared down the barrel of that bull's gaze. And there cowboy was standing firm. And dad lifts up his rope to hit the bull in the face to say, you're not coming this way, bull. But when dad lifted that rope, cowboy's courage gave. And Cowboy did the most evasive maneuver that I have ever seen, and he sidestepped that bull like a running back would a good linebacker. And there Dad is, caught in the middle between heaven and hell, <laughs> floating like a Looney Tunes cartoon. I am telling you, I saw the uh-oh sign come up, you know, with Acme Corporation. It was hysterical. There the bull was headed back to the pond. There cowboy was off in the bushes laughing. And there dad is on the ground aching in pain. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> At first we began to drive that bull with the motivation of fear. Come on bull, let's go bull. You want to know the way that we ended up getting that bull into our fence? We got a bucket of feed and rattled it all the way back onto our property. What we could not do through pushing the cow, we did through drawing the cow. And it was amazing when he had the proper motivation, things became much easier for him. What is it in Noah's life that drove him? What made him be the preacher that he was, the man that he was? What made him stay faithful through the many, many years of building the ark? This morning I want to take a look at three unbelievable traits in Noah's life that drove him to be the man that he was. First of all, I want you to see this morning, the first uh, trait in Noah's life was the integrity of his heart. Look in the Bible, verse number 9 of chapter 6. The Bible says this, These are the generations of Noah. Now this is such a great description of a man in the Word of God. The Bible says, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Did you know that it's impossible to be a just man and a perfect man unless you walk with God? Noah loved God, and Noah was intimately close to God in fellowship. Noah was a good man, a righteous man, a godly man. But I want you to notice this morning, that was in spite of his condition. Verse number 8, uh, don't miss this. The Bible says, but Noah found, what's the next word there? Grace. Do you know why Noah found grace? Because he needed it. As good as Noah was, he wasn't good enough. Noah was a just man, but he wasn't perfect. Noah was a righteous man, but he wasn't sinless. You know why Noah needed grace? Because he was a sinner, just like you and me. It's amazing how we, as we read the Bible, sometimes think that the men in the Bible had it easier. Like, oh, I could have walked with God back then. Noah, Noah was a just man in a very difficult time. Noah loved God and he needed grace. 
You know what the strangest excuse I've ever heard at the door, and it's becoming more and more and more uh, 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 common as I go door knocking? Well, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I, I do a lot of good things. Yeah, but I bet if you compared yourself to Noah, you'd come up short. And Noah needed grace. The Bible puts it like this in the book of Isaiah. From the sole of the head, uh, or from the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. We are sinners from our tippy-tip toes to our, uh, 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 the t- tallest hair on our head. We are sinners. And you know what we need when we're a sinner? We need grace. Noah was a a, a man who had an integrity in his heart despite his condition. Notice this, secondly, despite his uh, uh, climate. Despite the climate that he found himself in. Look at this in verse number 5. The Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination uh, uh, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually we get the idea that Noah had it easy. But the Bible paints a completely different story. Every person that Noah came in contact with on a day-to-day basis was evil. They were wicked. Let me give you an idea of what Noah's day may have been like. Noah wakes up early in the morning, kind of freshens up, combs his hair, get ri- gets rid of the uh, uh, bad taste in his mouth, and he walks out to his mailbox. Over in the, on the other side of the fence, there his neighbor is. And he says, oh, hey neighbor. You know what that neighbor was? Evil continually. Noah then gets, in his, uh, gets on his steed there. I almost said gets in his car. We can, we can play a little bit with the Bible, but I don't think they had cars back then. Uh, but there Noah is, and he gets on his steed and rides into town. He's going to go down to Denny's. Now, they didn't have cars, but they certainly had Denny's. I know that. And uh, uh, he goes down to Denny's there, and, and the lady comes up, and he says, Ma'am, how you doing today? I would like a Grand Slam. And you know what that waitress was? Evil continually. Noah then had to go run some errands, and he, uh, he had to go to the grocery store, and there he was checking out with some things at the grocery store. And his bag boy says, sir, would you like paper or plastic? And uh, Noah says, well, I'll take paper. And, and the boy, you know what that boy was? He was only evil continually. Now, I understand that we're somewhat giving you a modern-day example, but every single person in Noah's life on a day-to-day basis, the Bible describes them as this way, Only evil continually. Every billboard Noah would have seen was evil. His climate was not of such that was conducive to someone walking with God and being upright in their moral character and integrity. His climate was not of such that, oh, we're going to fence Noah in and he's not going to have to deal with any pressures from people. No, Noah's climate was as wicked as any mankind's climate has ever been. And yet he kept his integrity. It's amazing how many people in today's world use the wickedness of our culture as an excuse for their own sin. They'll say, man, it's harder to be a teenager now than it's ever been. Okay, agreed. Doesn't give them an excuse not to be a good teenager. They say, man, I just I drive down the road and I see all these terrible billboards. I, I just can't help but look at them. No, just because your climate is terrible doesn't mean you can't walk with God. Doesn't mean you can't be righteous. Because that's what God expects from us. 
Now I'm so thankful to be in a wonderful marriage where my wife and I agree on the temperature of our home. But I know that with the amount of couples in this room today, there are no doubt couples who don't always agree on the thermostat's temperature. And just about the time the husband goes by to turn it down, because most men like it real cold, there the wife is covered up in her parka and her blanket, walking over to the thermostat to turn it up. And before you know it, the house is on 82 degrees, and you say, why don't you just go live outside? And I know this can be quite contentious for some. How many of you have ever said something like, you, let me be the only one to touch the thermostat? I mean, I'm sure there are some in the room. Did you know that in your spiritual life, nobody has access to your spiritual thermostat but you? Your wife can't control it for you. Teenagers, your dad and your mom can't control your spiritual thermostat. Only you can decide how you're going to live. And you can't always use your surrounding environment as uh, uh, the barometer for how you're going to live. For instance, my home is not the temperature of the outside around it because that is not me controlling the thermostat. You are the one responsible for how you live your life. You can't blame Vegas for it. You can't blame Hollywood for it. You can't say, oh, but America's just gone so far. What America needs is Christians to start living like Christians ought to live. Noah was a man of integrity in his heart despite his condition and his climate. The second trait I want to share with you this morning is Noah not only had integrity in his heart, he had a desire to obey God. He had a desire to obey God. God said, Noah, I need you to build an ark. And Noah probably looked at God and said, well, what's an ark? Noah, I need you to build this boat and craft it like this. And and Noah didn't argue, he didn't refute God, he just said, Okay, God, I'll do it. And what's amazing to me is that he did it despite the duration of the project. I mean, how long did Noah have to obey God? Look in verse number 3 of chapter number 6. The Bible says this, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Now, how many of you have ever heard that Noah had 120 years to to work on the ark and to craft the ark? Has anybody ever heard that? Is there some? I know that my whole life I have thought that Noah had 120 years to build the ark. But if I read that verse, I don't necessarily see God giving Noah that amount of time to build the ark. In fact, I don't even believe that that's God proclaiming that Noah, or, or from this date would be 120 years the flood would come. I believe that this was God saying, I can't deal with men living 900 years anymore. And did you know immediately after the flood, uh, men's lifespan went from about 900 years all the way from Adam to Noah to right after the flood, Shem lived only about 500 years. And it steadily declined until after Moses, there was not but one person ever recorded to having lived longer than 120 years. God was not saying here, oh, well, no, you have 120 years to build the ark. No, God was saying men are only going to be able to live 120 years. And then we know that God even takes it down further than that later on in Scripture. 
So how long did Noah have to build the ark? Well, look in chapter 5, verse 32. And I'll give you some, uh, some idea. Now, if you want to believe 120 years, you're entitled to that belief, certainly. But I'll give you an idea of how long he may have had. Isaiah 5, verse 32 says, And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we know that the Bible says Noah had all three sons by the time he was 500 years old. Okay? We all understand that. Now look in verse number 18 of chapter number 6. The Bible says, and this is God telling Noah uh, how the flood's going to go down. He says, but with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. So God is giving Noah the very first instruction to build the ark, right? And he says, and your sons are going to be there. So it's hard for God to tell Noah, your sons and your wives and all, all of them are going to be there, if Noah doesn't have the sons yet, right? So we know in the previous chapter, he was 500 years old when he had all the sons. And, and chapter, verse number 10 of this same chapter tells us that Shem, him, and Japheth were alive at the time of this message coming to Noah. Now look in chapter number 7, verse number 6. The Bible says, And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. So at 500, he has all of his children, right? At 600, he has, he's, he's on the ark in the flood. It's hard to get 120 years between the age of 500 and 600, is it not? It's difficult. Now, I don't know how long he had to build the ark. I know that God was saying, your sons and their wives, so some assume, and I'm just, I would never tell you how to believe or what to believe, but some people assume all of his sons were married at the time that God gave him the instruction, so you would assume that maybe his sons were at least 20. So uh, you would cap that off about 80 years, maybe they were 40, so 60 to 80 Somewhere between 60 and 120 years, we can all agree that Noah had to build the ark, right? We can all agree on that. Either way, that's a long time. 60 years. Man, we look at somebody that's worked for the same company for 40 years as just, man, wow, you worked for them that long? And Noah went to work every day. Whether it was 60 years, whether it was 120 years, that's a lot of days. And yet Noah stayed faithful to obey God. Could you imagine, in, in the span of 120 years, there's about 64,000 days in, in, in that... Uh, oh, oh, I can't remember my math now. I'm trying to remember. I, well, here's the problem. Last night when I was studying this, and this is why I got mad about this. I've believed for my whole life there's 120 years in this deal. And last night I built uh, one dot. And I said, we're going to let this one dot represent uh, one day. And then we're going to let these dots represent this many days. I had to make a slide with 64,000 days on it. You know how long that took me to make? <laughs> Something like about 120 years. Regardless, that is a long time. And can you imagine Noah's first day as he gathers the lumber and he thinks, whoa, I had a long bit of work in front of me. 
It was a while back before I got married, I called my buddy Cody up. And I said, hey, man, i got to prepare my house for my wife. Uh, she's in North Carolina. I'm going to go up to Carolina and get married. I'm going to bring her back. And I want her to have some furniture to put her clothes in and stuff. And so I went down to the best furniture place that I knew of, the highest class, highest quality. And, and so I went to Big Lots and got some good stuff. <laughs> if, it, if it's not particle board, it's not good wood. That's what I've heard. So there I was at Big Lots. I bought this dresser and I said, hey, Cody, what are you doing tonight? He said, oh, man, nothing. I, I don't have nothing to do. I don't have a life. And I said, I believe that, Cody. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Cody's a good guy. And there he was. And, and, and me and Cody, I said, hey, will you come over and help me build this dresser? I mean, we'll have a good time. I'll order us some pizza. We'll watch the Rangers game. We'll have a good time. And he said, sure, man, I'll be glad to do that. So Cody comes over. Now I was thinking maybe an hour and a half. I was thinking, maybe two hours. I mean, Cody's as good a craftsman as I know. Not. <laughs> and there we were, putting all these dresser drawers together. And, and I don't know why Asians have to make the uh, uh, screws different than ours. But instead of just having a screw, they have this like sliding, rotating contraption that's the most difficult thing ever. And then it breaks out of your particle board, which is surprising because particle board is good stuff. But anyway, I'm sitting there, and we're putting it together, and I said, okay, Cody, here's your three drawers that you put together. Here's my three drawers that I'm going to put together. Man, we get through the Ranger game, and we're not even close to being done. We've eaten our pizza. We've done all this. It's like 1030 at night, and we still don't have drawers assembled. We finally get them done. My three are done, and Cody's three are done. I'm like, whew, we're just about done with this. Man, that took us a long time. And then I look at Cody's drawers. And they're different than my drawers. <laughs> you know how the drawers are supposed to be longer than they are wide? Well, Cody's were wider than they were long. <laughs> I said, Cody, I, I don't think that's going to fit in that hole there. Man, we worked on that thing for probably six or seven hours before we got one little particle board dresser from Big Lots put together. Could you imagine being Noah? I mean, he didn't have any power tools, right? I mean, they got Denny's. They don't have steel and Dremels. They don't have all those. Look, sometimes we, we read these numbers in the Bible almost as if, oh, that's a span of time. We don't put into terms how long this guy went to work every day. Noah got up at the breakfast table. Mrs. Noah said, what are you going to do today, Noah? Well, I'm going to go work on the boat. You know what my wife says when I say I'm going to go work on the boat? Oh, I hate the boat. <laughs> you think Noah's wife, by the end of this 60 to 120 years, will say, oh, I hate the boat. <laughs> and yet, despite the duration of it all, Noah kept obeying. Not only despite the duration, but despite the disinterest. Look, this whole sermon thought was built upon this. People making fun of Noah and Noah continuing to preach besides it. In spite of it. But did you know that the Bible never says anybody ever made fun of Noah? Did you know the Bible never says anybody criticized Noah? Now, how many of us have heard sermons like that, right? The, we imagine Noah on the scaffolding, uh, uh, on the scaffolding of his boat there uh, beside it, pitching it. And we imagine this crowd of hecklers down below, do we not? 
Oh, Noah, what are you doing? What are you thinking? The rain's going to come. It's not in this story. And preachers have added that. And there's a good chance it happened. But the Bible doesn't say it did. In fact, this is the only indication of the people's attitude towards Noah building the ark that we have at all. The Bible says in Luke chapter 17. Now this is Jesus many, many, many years later describing the attitude of the people after, or while Noah was building the ark. And Jesus says this, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Well, how was it in the days of Noah? They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, what Jesus is kind of saying here is, it was like they didn't care that he was building an ark. You know what's harder than having a critic? Having no one that cares at all. Look, even if I'm standing at the door of someone's home and I knock on their door and I say, are you sure where you'd spend eternity? And you say, well, I'm not sure. And I'm able to leave some scripture there. They may be, cynic, uh, they may be cynical the whole time. They may criticize me the whole time. But at least if I leave that door, you know what I'm able to say to myself? Well, at least they heard the gospel. And at least the word of God never returns void. Maybe later on tonight, the word of God will begin to work in the heart. And that is at least somewhat encouraging. But in Noah's case, it's almost as if he's building this huge boat and people just kept living the way they were going to live. Like, okay, Noah, you can do whatever you want to do, but we're going to keep being who we are. They were totally disinterested in Noah's work. Christian, we cannot allow people's uh, uh, paradigm, we cannot allow people's perception of our work to dictate to us our obedience. Uh, whether or not people criticize us, whether people not care about us, whether or not people even uh, care how we live our life, we are to obey God. You know why? Because thus saith the Lord. That's our motivation for service. That's our motivation for obedience. And that was Noah's. God said build an ark, so despite everybody's uh, indifference and, and, and despite uh, uh, the duration of the project, I am just going to build because God said to build. You know what we ought to do as Christians? Do what God says. You know why? Because God said to do it. Not only did he have an integrity in his heart, he had a desire to obey God. And th finally this, he had a hope to see people saved. He had a hope to see people saved. How do you know that, Brother Andrew? Well, the Bible calls him a preacher. In fact, the, Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. In Noah's preaching alone, we, we can hear him cry, Repent! Repent! Uh, be righteous, because thus saith the Lord. Repent! And that was Noah's preaching. He was a preacher of righteousness. Do you notice how countercultural that would have been in this day, though? I mean, the world is only evil. How does the Bible describe it? Only evil continually. Everybody's wicked. The bag boy's wicked. The waitress is wicked. His neighbor is wicked. Everybody is wicked. And there Noah is preaching righteousness. It's kind of countercultural, isn't it? 
that's very opposed to a worldview. The gospel and the truth of God has always been countercultural. It's always been against the world. There has never been a time when God's word has been in agreement with the way that worldly men live. It's never existed and it never will exist. For God is truth and the world lives a lie. God is light and the world loves darkness. The word of God has never agreed with them. And so there Noah is up on the bow of his ship preaching righteousness even if there was no audience. That's impressive to me. The weak pulpits of today will form the strongest moral caskets of tomorrow. You know why our world is progressing the way it is? I I can't say that the only reason, but I'll say one of the reasons the world is going the way it is is because our churches have not made the world churchy. Our churches have become worldly. And people are ashamed to stand up and say, God asks you and proclaims to you to live this way, to live righteously and to be a man of integrity. And yet people want to say, oh, but God says draw nigh unto him and and he will draw nigh unto you. Yeah, in the same verse he says, cleanse your your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Oh, but we only think about drawing. We never think about repenting. Weak pulpits. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You not only see Noah trying to get people saved through his preaching, but you see it because of his persistence. I want you to see this. Don't miss this. And this is the most important part of the sermon today. Verse number 17 of chapter number 6. God was telling Noah who was going to be on the ark. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Verse 18, we find out who is going to be saved. But with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into thy ar- the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. How many people made it on the ark? Eight. How many people did God say was going to make it on the ark? Eight. From the time that God gave his plan to the time that his plan was fulfilled, his plan never changed. Eight made it on the ark. So here's a question. Why did Noah preach? It's almost as if God's mind was made up on the matter, right? Noah, eight people are going to be saved. So it kind of seems like a hopeless time to preach. Noah was a man full of faith. In fact, he's mentioned in Hebrews in the hall of faith because God asked him to do something that had never before been seen and Noah did it. I'm going to submit to you an idea and you take it for what it's worth, but do you suppose that one of the reasons Noah may have continued to preach was because he himself had tasted God's grace and he knew that if somebody else would repent, they could taste it too. And that he maybe knew that if somebody would repent, God may just change his mind. You say, God never changes. Well, it'd be hard to describe that to Jonah. 
Because how many of us remember what Jonah's original plan was? Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh and cry against that great city. Jonah goes to Tarshish instead of Nineveh. After he spends a little time in the fish's belly, smells a little fishy, gets thrown up on land, he makes it to Nineveh in just a day and a half, and there Jonah is standing in the gates of the city, and he says, uh, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What happens? The city breaks out into revival. This is no joke. The king gets word of Noah's decree from God, and he himself proclaims a citywide repentance. They all put on sackcloth, they all put on ashes, and they repent. Now tell me what happens after that. God's anger is turned from Nineveh, and he spares the city because they repented. God changed his mind in that case. God looks at Abram there on that hillside looking down over Sodom and Gomorrah, and God shares with Abraham his plan for that city. He says, I'm going to destroy it, Abraham. Their city has come up before me. And, and, and Abraham says, but God, what if there's 50 men in that city that are righteous? And God says, Abram, okay, my plan was to destroy the city, but if there are 50 righteous men in that city, I'll save it. And, and Abraham says, well, 50 is a lot. I mean, most Baptist churches don't even have 50 righteous men, God. So uh, uh, 50 is a lot. What about 45? And God says, okay, Abraham, if there's 45 righteous men, I'll turn my anger from the city. And Abraham says, well, <laughs> 45 is asking a lot. What about 30? God says, if there's 30, I'll do it. And, and, and Abraham, he's a great negotiator. I mean, this is some tremendous negotiating skills. Abraham says, well, God, what if there's 20? And God says, okay, if there's 20. Abraham gets it down to 10. What was God looking for? Repentance. Repentance has always uh, 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 invoked God's mercy. Even when God is just, He is merciful. Even when God must execute vengeance, God executes love to a greater degree. The Bible states like this in Romans chapter 5. The Bible says, for where sin did abound, their grace did much more abound. You see, when sin calls for payment, God's love calls for mercy. That is tremendous. You know the reason Noah kept preaching is because he believed God's mercy was greater than his justice. And, and don't take that wrong. When, when Noah was preaching, he was saying in the back of his mind, I know there's only eight going to be saved. I know there's going to only eight be saved. But what if one man were to repent? What if one man were to get right? I know what God said, but maybe he'll turn his anger from these people. I believe with my whole heart Noah never wanted to get on the boat. Because if Noah had to get on the boat, that meant the whole world died. The reason Noah preached for all of those years was because he knew God was a God of mercy. Friend, you may be struggling with someone who you say, Brother Andrew, I've prayed for them. I've asked them, and they just do not hear the gospel. Each week, you are given a, a prayer request form there in your bulletin, and all you have to do is write a prayer request, and, 
And that prayer request form is turned into our staff. And each Wednesday at staff meeting, we all get a revised, fresh, updated prayer list that we pray over as a staff. And you know what? One of the most common prayer requests on that list is, pray for my brother, he needs to be saved. Pray for my father, he needs to be saved. Pray for my wayward child, he needs to get right. One of the most common things is for Christians just asking for prayer. Let me just tell you today, you may say, oh, Brother Andrew, they just don't seem that they're ever going to get right. Don't give up on them because Noah preached for all those years and he said, it may be that God's mercy will prevail. Don't give up on them. When their outlook looks bleak, remember God is a God of mercy. When there seems there is no hope, remember the one who offers endless hope. That is God in heaven above. Man, you may be sitting here today and say, Brother Andrew, I'm so undeserving of God's mercy. I feel so sinful. I feel so backslidden. I feel so wrong. My friend, don't ever say that about my God because you're neglecting to consider the greatest thing he ever did for you when he hung Jesus Christ on the cross not to extend judgment to this world but to extend mercy to this whole world. Man, one of the ways that you can see Noah's passion for souls is that he kept preaching He was persistent to preach. Don't give up. Don't give up on those that are around you. Man, just because this world is getting worse and worse, that doesn't give us Christians an excuse to sit back and say, well, they probably wouldn't get saved if I go anyway. Noah kept preaching. Just because people criticize our message more vehemently now than they ever have before, doesn't give us an excuse to not preach. Keep preaching like Noah. Noah was a man of integrity. And men and women in this church today, God wants you to be a child of integrity. He wants your heart to be a heart that follows Him. Each week you come to church and you're asked to love God, live for God, and share God with others. And God wants you to do that. He was a man of integrity. He was a man who had a desire to obey God. What's your heartbeat? Is it to get the promotion? Is it to to, to, uh, be better at your hobby? No. Your heartbeat ought to be to obey God in everything He asks you to do. And church, we've gotten away from this and we need to get back to this. We need to have a passion for souls, like Noah did. It's so easy to look at people and say, oh, they would never hear it, but how do you know? God's waiting to extend mercy to them. But sometimes He just needs a preacher to reach them. 